Facebook. If you don't have your Bible uh, and you want to read along with us and see where we're at, just raise your hands and one of the guys would love to hand you a Bible. And I just want to say a couple different things as I typically always do before uh, we get into Ruth. One is for those of you who are parents, take note of what's in the, uh, the bulletin. We are providing a two-day seminar for you where we're going to feed you uh, and teach you how to uh, equip you to how to better parent your kids. And so take a look at that, and then sign-ups will be out for that in a, in a week or two. Um, so just take note of that. And then one other thing, you know, several months ago before Big Bad Brad, who was up here, took off for sabbatical, uh, we, we did kind of a, uh, just a, a push for uh, updating all of our video equipment. And right now what you have on the screens, a lot of it is 90s technology, which I don't know if you know is, is dated at this, at this time. And uh, we've had some issues with the screens and, and different things. And so we're going to replace all of that. And we're doing a whole rehaul that will last us hopefully another, you know, 15, 20 years down the road. And one of those things that we're doing is we're going to be sending video feed next door. So we have events throughout the year, whether it's Christmas Eve or Easter, uh, sometimes it's a memorial service, where this room gets totally packed out. People are in the foyer and they're on the deck. And I have actually had the fire marshal come and encourage me uh, to find a different way to seat people within our room. And so we're going to start sending uh, video feed next door for those bigger events. So we'll be implementing that. And then the nursery workers are going to get the video feed over there too. They've been asking for that for several years. And so the reason I mention that isn't because, you know, we need more money for it. We are, we, there's a possibility we could go two weeks without screens. And I know in our day and age, that's asking for a lot. Uh, to have a couple Sundays without video feed. So just be prepared. If you show up on a Sunday and we don't have video, uh, there's a reason uh, for that. And then uh, the other thing I want to talk about, which is a real neat blessing for me to be able to do, one of the things that we share uh, on Sunday mornings for our church, and so if you're visiting and you're wondering, man, what, what is our purpose? Our purpose, obviously, is to be in a right relationship with Jesus. But we really want our presence to be a blessing to the Truckee Tahoe area. And what I mean by that is that if for some reason Sierra Bible Church disappeared tomorrow, Truckee would say, you know what, we're not, we're not as good as we were with them. And, and what that means is this. It means we're not out there necessarily just trying to get everybody to agree with us. Uh, we, we want them to know that we love Truckee, and we genuinely care about them. And, and we have all kinds of people in this church that are generous in so many different ways, not only within the church, but also the community as a whole, giving resource, time, energy, passion, and love. One of those individuals that has been doing that, and I've shared, them, uh, shared about them on, on quite occasions, uh, is Jim Mathias. He helps out with Hispanic ministry here. He does all kinds of things for us as a church, uh, for artwork. He does things behind the scenes that no one ever sees, and he is out in the community blessing people wherever he can. Now, now for the last several years, uh, the auto doctor here in town, owned by John Lamoureux, they they've been doing a really neat thing where, where they do kind of a uh, a fundraiser to give away a car to someone in need. And one of the things that to get a car is you have to have people fill out why, you, why do you deserve a car. So it can't be, hey, you're good looking, like you can't put that down, and then hope to get a car. It's got to be a legitimate need and a legitimate reason. Well, Jim has just been doing everything he can to get his 1923 Jeep Cherokee to keep going as long as possible, okay? Um, this thing, he has driven this thing into the ground. Every year he comes to people in the community as well as many of you and he says, please fill out this form and, and see if the auto doctor will give me a car. And uh, there are so many other people who are in more need than Jim. And so the car has gone to someone who's more in need. Well, recently 
John Lamoureux contacted our church, and he wants to bless Jim with a gift. And so I want to introduce you to John Lamoureux, auto, uh, auto doctor owner. And Jim, why don't you share with everyone what you're doing here this morning? He, you, you did tell me before the service you do spoken word, right? I do. Okay, good. <laughs> he said, I'm not good with a microphone, so. I'm not good. But you're really well, tall. I'd appreciate it if you'd stand bear, down there. Bear with me. There you go. I'm just, okay. You're good. I'm, it's a joke. It's an, it's an ongoing joke with the church about so, my height. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, we got the same hair. Yeah, we do That's have the same hair. Nice. Yeah, God's blessing. There you go. Yeah. So um, thank you, everybody. Um, and I am a little nervous, so. Yeah, stand. <laughs> okay, you're I'll good. stand behind you. You're good. We'll make you feel comfortable. All right. Here. Um, so yeah, so this came to light. I mean, after, I, I got to be honest, the hardest part of this whole car giveaway thing is deciding who does get the car. Um, we get a lot of great applicants and, you know, it's, it's tough to make that decision. So I try not to do it. Um, I'll leave that to somebody else. So anyways, the car went to somebody that didn't have a car at all and they ended up with that holiday car. But in the meantime, you know, you guys at this church were very overwhelming with the response that I got and you recommending Jim for this car. And it just stuck in my head this whole time. And I've been racking my head trying to figure out a good way to do this. And it came to me, you know, here I've got this car and it's been around a little bit. Um, it's been through a lot, actually. And for some reason, I've kept this thing alive and it's kept going and it's, it's helped a bunch, a bunch of people in the meantime over the years. And uh, I thought, well, wow, what a great car this would be for this particular person that goes around helping all the people that he helps. And so here I am. I've got a great car for you, Jim. Um, I think it's going to be perfect for what you do. Um, and it, I, I want to see you keep on helping people. I know you will do that. So uh, there's a Ford Escape out in the parking lot with the keys in it. It's all fixed up, ready to go. You should have nothing, nothing else to do to it. You should be able to just drive it. And uh, um, the title's in it, so it's all yours, buddy. Thank you. Hey, Jim, why don't you come give him a hug, man? So, <laughs> Cool. Thank you, guys. So he let me know when we were out here, brand new engine, brand new transmission, brand new tires. You're, you're good to go for another 60 years. <laughs> he even shampooed the carpet. That's pretty awesome. Just give him a hand. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You want to say something? I don't think I could. Okay, good. So um, it's always really beautiful for me to be able to see something culturally within our church that we've shared, that we've desired God to do, and then to see that played out. And so I don't want it to be lost on, uh, on us as a church, nor, nor Jim as a whole. Like, God is good to his people. And your work in the community and your work that you do in the name of Jesus doesn't just go unnoticed, it impacts people. And so I just, for, as, for you as a whole, as a church, I just say thank you for continuing to do uh, what God's called you to do and to be genuine people. It's not just a reflection of Jim, it's a reflection of God as well. You just imagine all these Sierra Bible Church letters being poured into the auto doctor. <laughs> Give this car to Jim. <laughs> okay. I cave, all right. That's pretty cool. Um, 
This morning, uh, we're going to pick up in this book, and so those of you who are here on a regular basis, you know that we deeply care about Scripture and what God teaches us in Scripture, and the way that we honor God uh, for the reading of Scripture is we like to stand. So if you're able to this morning, would you stand with me as I read starting in Ruth chapter 1, um, verse 16, someone had said to me a week into uh, the Ruth message, they came, we get people from all over, really the nation, who come to Tahoe and visit our church, and, and many of them have said to me when they visit, we really appreciate your church and love what you do and love what kind of community you have, and, and they said, we knew you were going to do Ruth, so we, uh, we read Ruth, it took us about 25 minutes, it takes about 25 minutes to read Ruth from start to finish. And outside before the service at the second message, she came to me and said, I have no idea how you're going to get six messages out of Ruth. And someone walking by who's been here on a regular basis who knows me said, you don't know Jesse, and kept walking. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're four weeks in, and we're, not, we're going to finish chapter one this morning. And so we know that my job here is there's a difference. I know I harp on this a lot. There's a difference between a TED Talk and preaching. I, my job is not to give a TED Talk. My, my job is to proclaim what God says in his words. And so uh, as we read this, we understand that what God says to us is true, and it's worthy of honoring and learning from. And so let us read together Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, "And Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord, and the church said... You may be seated. Um, so by way of reminder, and by way of those maybe who haven't experienced the last several weeks with us, we started this story with two individuals, a husband and a wife. That husband's name was Elimelech, the wife's name, Naomi. They lived in Bethlehem, and what came upon Bethlehem was a drought, a famine. Food ran out. In Bethlehem. Bethlehem was where God's people resided. It was where Israel was supposed to live. And Elimelech, instead of trusting the Lord and working through that with his people in his community, made a decision to go to Moab, which is outside of Israel's border, with a group of people who worshipped a different kind of God, a God that required human sacrifice, a violent God and a violent people, and a very dark culture. We're told in the story that the move was a tragic one for Naomi. Elimelech, her husband, dies, but before he passes, they had two children who took two wives for themselves. And then those two kids, her two sons, die, leaving behind two widows. One is named Ruth, 
which the book is named after, and the other one, Orpah. Naomi is awakened, realizing that the 10-year stint in Moab was not one that she should have taken, that it was the wrong path to take. So she repents from the decision. She turns from the decision after 10 hard, heart-aching years. And she returns back on the road to Bethlehem. And as she's going, she brings with her her two daughters-in-law, who were Moabite women, not Israel, Israelite women. On the journey, at some point, Naomi has this, this kind of awakening, and she stops in the journey, stops on the path, looks to Naomi, I'm sorry, looks to Ruth, and looks to Orpah and says, hey, listen, ladies, don't come to me to Israel. If you come to Israel, you're not going to fit in. You don't worship the same God. You're probably not going to find a husband. You're probably never going to have children. So she says to them, the smart thing to do, the intelligent thing to do, is not follow me and my faith, but actually go back home, find yourself a Moabite husband, have for yourselves Moabite children, and enjoy the rest of your days on earth to the best of your ability. Just, just go. And Orpah says yes. She, she's like, this is the, probably the best thing I can do. So she leaves, and she goes back to Moab. But we see that Naomi... Naomi now has this, this other daughter-in-law who's loyal and courageous, and she turns from her Moabite god, this is Ruth now, and clings to Naomi and uses this marital language. Maybe you've heard it in a wedding before, right? Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. It's covenantal kind of language. And so they travel along. And they enter into the segment of Scripture that we're in this morning. They enter into Bethlehem, and the people of Bethlehem notice that it's Naomi, and they ask the question, is this Naomi? Right? It's echoing of the fact that, that Naomi, something physically has changed in Naomi. Maybe her outward appearance from depression and anxiety and hurt and pain is now on her face. And they're wondering, is this really the same woman that left so many years ago? Is this her? And upon her returning, they recognize that it's Naomi. And it tells us here that there was a great stirring within Bethlehem. There's a great stirring within God's Bethlehem. Now, that word stirring has different connotations when you look at it in the original language in Hebrew. One is, one is there's a murmuring, a gossiping. It's as if it's as if Naomi now has, has returned, and they're now gossiping, is this really her? But the word also has connotations of celebration, that the city is celebrating that Naomi is returning home. This is something that we've talked about in the past, as it tells us in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus says this, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need repentance. The, the joy of what's happening in the city is they're saying, you know what? This woman has come back to her God. She's come back to her people. And as a church, we need to recognize something really important. This is what this whole book is about. I've titled the message, Naomi Comes Home to the Harvest. Now, if you remember in chapter one, chapter one starts with a famine. Remember? That's how it starts. There's a famine in the land. There's drought. There's desolation. In chapter, at the end of chapter one, how does it end? It ends with the beginning of a harvest. I said to you the very first week that this is a book that moves from sorrow to joy, famine to fruit. 
Right? This is a book that is moving us towards, towards understanding that God wants us to see that we have these moments and these times in life that are hard and they're difficult, but God has us on a journey to bring us to a place of rejoicing and happiness. Does anyone need more of that this morning? Oh, good. You're, you're way more alive than the first service. It, at this time, coffee has moved through the system, and you are able to interact with me. I, I appreciate it. So, the, here's what Ferguson says. Ferguson Sinclair Ferguson, great theologian, he says, when over an extended period of time, a church, when a church sees no one coming to faith and rejoicing in the fellowship, being with the body of Christ, a spiritual torpor or inactivity often sets in. We say we believe in the potential power of God, but we lose faith in his actual power. And so our prayers are faithless and pessimistic. Our church life becomes interned. If our congregation is numerically relatively strong, we become narcissistic and self-satisfied. But the truth is that we need an inbreaking of God's grace and power. It takes only one conversion for the church to begin to believe again in the regenerating, in the regenerating power of God. This is important. It's important because, because as, as the, the lead guy here, I'm just part of the team, but as the lead guy here, it's important to me to see and know where we're at spiritually as a church. Here, here's wonderfully, incredibly good news. You just experienced it. By God's grace, okay? Not because we're smart, not because we're strategic, not because we're awesome, but by God's amazing grace, you are not, if this is your home, you are not part of a weak church. You're not part of an anemic church. We're, we're a strong church. God has blessed us. We have incredibly generous people. We have, we have an incredible servant base, people who are willing to step up and do things on a Sunday that other people won't do. Were you here, Easter? An amazing base of people. You got you, somebody liked Easter. Thank you, whoever you are. It, we, we have an amazing group of people. But what, what Ferguson is saying is he's saying, listen, if, if we're not careful, we can grow narcissistic. We can think, you know what? The way we do it's the best way. We, we can not only grow narcissistic, we can become interned, and we stop desiring to see more people come to Jesus Christ. We become content with the people who are currently here. Which, hey, let me, let me tell you, I'm glad you're here this morning. I think God is glad you're here this morning. But I do believe that God is in the business of regenerating people as he's doing for Ruth. See, I feel like I feel like down deep in my soul, down deep in my heart, that if I don't talk about these things, I'm being rebellious to God. I'm, being, I'm sinning against God. I have to push against the idea of comfortability. You, you, you know what? Church is not about you coming in here and being entertained. That's why I said the thing about TED Talk. I'm not here to get to, that you leave here and you go, you know what? Hoorah, shish <laughs> Like That's not why I exist. I I. I believe that God wants to bring people from a life of famine to a life of harvest. Do you believe that? And I believe that he wants to do that for you, and I believe he's got more people in the Tahoe Truckee area that he wants to do that for. And I think that all of you have Moabite people around you, those people who don't know God, those people who are living in famine, and, and God would say, okay, listen, what kind of people are around you that you don't think would ever come to Bethlehem? I had someone this, uh, on Easter tell me, we invited some friends to come to Easter service. And I said, great, that's awesome. I said, but what you don't know is we've known them for like 20 years. I said, really? And, and I said, what you don't know is for the last 20 years they've told us they would never step in to a church. 
They'll never come. I've known people over the years who've said, I can't go to church. And, and sometimes, sometimes it's because, you know, in honesty, they'd be like, I don't agree with what you teach and believe. Sometimes it's the songs you sing are a little weird. Sometimes it's Christians are odd, and we are. We're not normal. And look to your neighbor right now and go, you're not normal. <laughs> and, and then turn around and do that, make sure someone says it to you too. You're not normal. You're not normal. I, yeah, you just preach it to yourself. I am not normal. But when, when somebody encounters, and, and usually God is in the business of bringing, he is in the business of bringing people who would never know Jesus, never be saved, never understand the idea of the church, come in, find community, find friendship, find accountability, find love, find acceptance, find forgiveness, find redemption, find that the harvest is true for them, and then they fall in love with the church. And that's why so many of us can stand here during a worship song, close our eyes, and raise our hands because we're in awe that God pursued us in spite of us. And that's exactly what God has done and is going to do for Ruth. And the text is interesting because it's put Ruth behind the scenes here for a moment, and now it's focusing on Naomi. But the book isn't necessarily about Naomi. It's about the harvest for Ruth that she's going to have. right? And all the ladies are still waiting for Ruth to meet Boaz, aren't you? And I just keep stretching chapter one because I know you're going to come back next week. You're waiting. This is actually part one of a part two series. No, I'm just kidding. And Naomi, when she returns, when she comes back, this is key to returning and coming back to the harvest. Notice Naomi's confession. The people say, oh my gosh, look, look, it's it's, it's Naomi. Can you believe it? It's Naomi. Is it really her? And, and Naomi, the name Naomi means blessed. And names really meant something. Sometimes you could change your name based upon the kind of person you were. So Naomi meant blessed. And so, so they say, is this Naomi the blessed one? And Naomi says, don't call me blessed. Because, because when I left, that's when I was blessed. Before I left Bethlehem, before I left God, I was full. I was really, really full. And then I went to Moab, and, and though she left Bethlehem and she didn't have food, she says, even though I didn't have material provision, I was full. Now that I'm in Moab, I'm not full. I've lost my husband. I've lost my children. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. And the name Mara means bitter. She says, for God's hand has been against me. One thing I want you to see about Naomi is Naomi, Naomi never commits the sin of ignoring that God is still working in the process. She, at the very least, is acknowledging that, that the good and the bad are happening because of God's providential hand. What Naomi doesn't see is what we're going to see. Naomi doesn't see, in the next three chapters, Naomi's socks are going to get blessed off. Right? She's going to be blown away by God's love and God's graciousness. She doesn't see that. And the one thing that she does in her confession is she actually says to God, Gather this for a moment. She says to him, I'm bitter at you. Your hand's been against me. This is important because in pastoral ministry, I have realized that there are only, there's only one type of person who actually gets better. And it's the person who actually gets real with God and gets real with their emotions and actually says, yep, I've got a problem. You can't help a drug addict until they admit they're a drug addict. 
You can't help an alcoholic until they admit that they're an alcoholic. You can't help somebody admit they have an anger problem until they get to that place. You can't help them. You can't. And, and so what she's doing is she's finally coming to this place where she's being open and she's saying to God, God, I know you exist. Somewhere back here in my mind, I know that you're supposed to be good. But in all honesty, if I was to choose my life, if I was to choose the way that I was going to live and choose the kind of things that happened to me, this isn't how I would do it. And your hand has been against me. Do you hate me, God? I'm bitter at you. Do you know that you can be completely open with God in regards to your emotions about God and he can handle it? And I think, I think if there's an issue you have with God, it won't be resolved until you tell him, hey, man, I got a problem with you. Now, here's the deal. The deal is, the deal is it's okay to do that as long as you know that God's going to guide you to something better and he's going to help you see that even the worst things in your life can be used for great blessing. Because one of the gospel principles, when we think of moving from famine, we think of famine to harvest, not having food to having food, to to not having provision, to having fulfilled promises. There's a gospel principle, a gospel principle that exists within our relationship with God in order to receive the harvest. Here's the principle tied deeply into the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, that in order for there to be new life, there has to be death first. It's a principle woven throughout all of Scripture. Listen to John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus speaking And from here on out, you're going to see a lot of language about harvest and seed and reaping and sowing. John chapter 12, verse 24 says, truly, truly, remember, we spent a year in John, not that long ago, an entire year in the gospel of John. And remember, when Jesus says, truly, truly, he's like, listen, listen. So tune in, right? Make sure your radio dial isn't squelchy at all. Make sure it's right there, not in between the two different, uh, you know, 101.5 and 101.5. Seven, it's got to be right there, 101.6. You dialed in? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see what Jesus says? You see what the gospel says? In order for you to be born again, who had to die? Jesus. Jesus suffers a death so that you can experience tremendous life. In fact, if you remember, a lot of the New Testament is written by a guy by the name of Paul. You ever heard of him? You've been here a little while, you know he's kind of an important guy. And Paul, Paul was Saul. And Saul was a guy who, who initially said, he, he was like those Moabite kind of people, even though he was a Pharisee, who said, you know what? Uh, Christianity is a big hoax. Jesus was a big heretic. And he believed so emphatically in his belief that we are told that Saul, who becomes Paul, ran around all of the known world at that time and murdered and martyred Christians. And there's a story, if you remember, of a man who's encircled by the Pharisees and he's stoned to death as this man is preaching the gospel. And we're told that Saul, who becomes Paul, is standing there watching this this person be martyred in the name of Jesus Christ, and he approved of the murder. Basically, the text tells us in the book of Acts about this murder that Saul, who becomes a Christian, not only approved of the murder, but orchestrated the murder, guided the murder, and said, this is the way it should be done, went to the next city and killed more. You know, you know who that individual was that was murdered? His name was Stephen. 
We're actually told later in the text is, as Paul is on the road to Damascus, when Jesus actually comes to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul is, is then converted over to Christianity. It's the death of Stephen that brings life to Paul. There's always this, this form within Scripture. And, and, and let me help you understand something here. This doesn't mean that it's always a physical death, that you'll experience something physically. So you don't think I'm going there theologically. But in order to become a Christian, something in your life may have to die in order for something else to live. I unfortunately have been dealing with, I have to be really discreet in this, but I sit on a, a board right now that oversees 100 churches within Nevada, Utah, California, and Hawaii. And one of the things that I've been exposed to are churches that are thriving and doing well, and I've also been exposed uh, to churches that are not thriving and not doing well. And then asking the question with those churches, can we replant the church? Should we repurpose the church? Or should we let the church die? Do you know some churches actually just need to die? Some of them just need to go away. The leadership's too corrupt. The people are too self-centered. The Bible is not mentioned. There's no good deeds within the community. It becomes just so revolved around self that it can't be reawakened. So the best thing to do is to let it die so that something else can come in its place. Because we do believe that when, when God brings something to death or he allows something to die, he allows something to be born again. Has anyone ever experienced that in your life? Is anyone living in Tahoe because an old life in the Bay Area needed to die? Have you ever met those people? They're here for five or ten years, right? They, they recognize that, that I've had people tell me, I've got to get out of the Bay Area. Has anyone, has, has anyone had to leave a job and get a new job, and that one needed to die so that the new job could be resurrected into the right arena and right area? Has anyone had a relationship that needed to die? Come on, there should be some girls in here who are like, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Yeah, you might be in that relationship now, which would give you freedom to just dump that dude, right? Move on, get out of Dodge, get into a new one. There's a principle spiritually that God would, that shows us that, that, that something has to deteriorate or just completely go away. It can be anything for you this morning, right? It, it might be saying no to a particular habit you have. But I can tell you I've seen individuals, I'm working with a guy right now, wonderful guy, who was an alcoholic for years. His thing was, he said, I drank until I ended up in the ER. I can't drink anymore because if I do, I will die. And he's had to put to death the ability to even have one drink. The ability to even work in an environment where alcohol is in any way celebrated. He's had to put that to death. Why? So his relationships can thrive and live. Do you, do you understand? Are you with me? Come on, be better than the 830 crowd. Just nod, make me feel better about myself. All right, cool. Sometimes, sometimes, like if, sometimes I'll just ask for that. I'll, I'll feel like I'm missing the point. I'm not driving at home. And you just nod your head, and then I'll, I'll regain momentum. And yeah, see you back there. You're like, please, move on. Now, as chapter one concludes, the harvest, not just because Naomi has returned, but throughout all of Scripture, the harvest is seen with rejoicing, reaping, and singing and praising. 
Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone, and you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So Scripture always sees the harvest as a celebratory time. Now what of this harvest? Jesus says something really interesting about people in regards to the harvest and, and, and all that is tied within it. If you, if you have the ability to do so, please turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. It's in the New Testament, if you're not familiar, uh, which is on the farther right side of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, if you go to Luke or John, you, too far. If you're in Revelation, you're way too far. Uh, Matthew 9. I'm sorry. Matthew 9. I... I'm just making sure you're really awake. Matthew 9. I apologize. I did say Mark. Matthew 9. (laughs) Matthew 9. Usually all of these quirks get, get blown up in the first service, and I'm way more polished in the second service. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Matthew 9, verse 35. When Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds that had come to him, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. One of the questions I had asked a little bit earlier to just put into text before you this morning, to ask the question with this, with this passage in mind, who are the Moabites that you see every day, the people that you see every day, that you are quick to assume they're never going to be interested in the gospel? Because see, Jesus, it tells us here, Jesus went into every single city and he blessed that city and he healed people who needed to be healed, and he loved people that needed to be loved, and he had conversations with people that no one was talking to. Now, let's be, let's be really honest, because it's taboo. It might be even taboo for you. When Jesus went into a city, the people he encountered was the prostitute and the tax collector and the leper. People who were shunned from society. The leper wasn't allowed to enter into the city because they didn't know how to contain that. So, hey, if you're a leper, you, you don't belong in the church. You belong out there. How about the prostitute? Well, wait a minute. There's no, there's no sin darker than sexual sin. And oftentimes, the prostitute was seen as someone who could actually even be stoned to death, murdered. Jesus goes to the prostitute. Man, he just embraces them. He loves them, and he shows them a great life. And then you think of the tax collector, the person who is in society that is all about manipulating you for financial gain. That, that guy's hated, right? Because he'd go into the city and go, you owe Caesar $15. Oh, and by the way, because I'm here knocking on your door, you also owe me $15. And he would take double the money for his own greed. And so Jesus enters into these individuals that are the unlovable of society. And what he's basically telling them as he goes city to city is he's saying, listen, I'm not going to build my kingdom off the backs of rich people, off the backs of wealthy people, off the backs of the cultural cool people, I'm going to build my kingdom on those who admit that they're broken. 
You see it? Do you see it? That he, God wants to build his kingdom on people that you don't think would ever turn to Christianity because they're quote-unquote too sinful. Or they're quote-unquote, their lifestyle's too, too radical or too alternative. So Jesus, I want you to see these things because they're important because the rest of the book is going to surround itself around this idea of harvest and moving from sorrow to, to plentiful. And the first thing that Jesus says in the text is he looks at these individuals and he sees them as people without a shepherd. They're without good leadership. You know, I, I can tell you now that in seeing other churches operate, whether they're healthy or they're not healthy, this is probably true of even businesses in the, in the community as well. Good leadership is, is so necessary. You can do a lot of great things with good leadership. You can have a, a great model and poor leadership and it won't work. You can have a poor model and good leadership and it'll work. Do you understand what I'm saying? The kind of people who are life-giving, the kind of people who delegate out authority, the kind of people who are all about the individual. I mean, for those of you who work for a company, you feel like a small guy. I, I remember a guy telling me one time, he said, hey, listen, he's a big CEO of a big company. And he said, whenever I visit other really big companies and I walk through the office to go sit down with the CEO and the CFO of these companies, as I'm walking through the office, I will stop and I'll have a conversation with the, with the person who's in a cubicle, right? They don't got the corner office. They don't have the, they don't have the window. They don't have the view. And he says, I'll walk up to him and I'll, I'll introduce myself to them. I'll say, hey, I'm so-and-so from the company. I'm the CEO of this company. And here's my personal line. If you ever need anything, give me a call. And he hands them their card. And I asked him why he did that. And he said, the reason is, he says, if I'm going to treat the little guy that way, how do you, what does that say to that big guy? He says, man, if he's going to treat my little people that way, and you treat your little people that way, even though they're not little people, you treat them for what they are, which is people who are made in the image of God, and they will sell out for you. And this is what Jesus does, isn't it? He takes the least of us, and he raises us up to a high place because he sees us. He sees us as sheep without a shepherd. He knows that you need guidance and he knows that you need care, and he's willing to actually put his own shepherding out there. That's, that's why we say time and time again, I may be the lead pastor, but I'm not the chief shepherd. Jesus is our lead, lead guy. Is he not? Everyone, come on now. Uh, this is where you have to nod your head, because, because my leadership will fail. I'm an imperfect person. Any of our elders' leadership will fail. The one who will never fail you the one who always desires to lead you from famine to prosperity is King Jesus, right? My job is to, get every, to do everything that I can to get you to magnify and worship and see that Jesus is worth coming to for the harvest for a better life. Everything, he is worth it. I'm not. I didn't die for you. I mean, I might, I might study for you, but I won't die for you, right? You don't understand what I'm saying. So, so first of all, he sees them as sheep as a shepherd. Number two, he has compassion, it says. He looks at those that are lost. He looks at those who are in the Tahoe area, and his heart is moved. There's genuine compassion. The word compassion in the original language here is rooted in, in like from the gut, a deep, gutted kind of pity. I, I have sat with people in counseling when they've dealt with something, usually the loss of a loved one. And as, I mean, those who've lost a loved one, you know, you feel that from the guts. Not just the heart. In American culture, Western culture, we talk about feeling it in the heart. But really, in reality, I think you would agree with me. When you really, really feel something, you feel it in the gut, right? I remember, I, remember, I, I think I've shared this just a little bit briefly. When my wife and I were dating, a few months in, she dumped me. 
right? And I felt it in the guts. Okay, I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. When I did eat, I felt nauseous. You know, that kind of just, ugh. And what he's saying is I, when I look at the people, when I look at those who aren't connected with me, I, I'm looking at the field of people and my, my guts are moved. Let me ask you a question, church. When was the last time that you've looked out upon the harvest of people who were lost and you felt great pity? Your guts were moved. When you looked out at those in the Tahoe Truckee area who were hurting and inside you just said, man. Because not, he, not only did Jesus, number, number two is that he was, he was moved. Number three, though, here is, is that he saw the potential of the harvest. He said, look, open your eyes and look at how great the harvest is. There's great potential. So sometimes when you see somebody who, who hasn't encountered the love of God, man, and they're just trudging through life or they've had several divorces or they've been outcasted from their family or they've been looked down upon, and maybe that's you this morning. You've been told all of your life that you're not good enough, that, that you're not worthy of the blessings that you have, that you're, you're not special enough to know the love of God. How could God ever love a person like you? Nobody knows what you've done. Nobody knows what you've gone through. And you feel that. And God says, man, I, I feel compassion for you. But he says, I, f- I see the potential in you. Not only do you look at people who are lost and go, I've got compassion for them, but, but I, have an inc- I have the eyes to see the incredible potential that God could use in that particular individual. I mean, sometimes, and, and hey, I'm Mr. Honest, and I just kind of put myself out there, but every now and then, yeah, I'll go down to Alibi, and I'll hang out at Alibi, and I'll see people who are hanging out down at Alibi, and I'll see some of the amazing music that's happening at Alibi, and my heart will be stirred for those people. I'll be like, do you know what those people could do for the kingdom of God when they get saved? The kind of gifts they can offer? Do you know I even do that in our church, though, as a whole? I'll look out at the crowds here, and I'll be like, man, when you sell out for Jesus, do you understand the impact that you will have for the Tahoe Truckee community? Is it, I mean, it cannot be lost on you what just happened between John Lamro and the auto doctor and Jim Mathias. And I know not of you know all of the details, but John Lamro being in our church, giving a car to Jim is a big deal. You don't know what to do, do you? That's a big deal. And the, I mean, it's a huge deal. And you, you know what's happening. Every time those kind of things happen, someone's life is getting better. Someone's life is improving. And we recognize this because God has an incredible amount of compassion for people, and he sees the incredible potential in people. Uh, I think I have a quote here that says, we need just as much of the expectancy and hopefulness of Christ that anticipates harvest time. Do you look upon your neighbors and colleagues and classmates and associates with the lively sense that here in that person is a potential saint. And, hey, and the challenge is this, right? It's probably the person you never thought would come to Jesus. And then Jesus says something really weird. And I know you, maybe you don't see it because you haven't had the time like I have in the week to study this and to dissect it, but then you've got this God who is the God of providence who knows the field. It's God's field. It's his field, and he says, you know what? You need to pray. You need to pray for workers. And it's, it's, it's just this weird deal because, first of all, it's God's field. God has the ability to harvest that field. He doesn't need our help. In fact, if you remember, the disciples are told by the Pharisees. They come to Jesus, and the Pharisees say to, the, say to Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. Tell them to stop talking about this kingdom of God. Tell them to stop talking about this heresy that you are the Christ. Tell them to stop. And Jesus says, you know what? I could tell them to stop, but even the, then the rocks would cry out. 
Jesus says, hey, listen, I, I can shut up every human being, but my salvation, my story of redemption, my story of renewal, my story of harvest will be preached by the very rocks if people don't talk. He's saying, I've got this thing covered. I was watching a, a cheesy analogy for some of you, but I was watching Golden State Warriors play last night. And uh, they lost, which is a sad deal. Some of you might celebrate that. Some of you don't care. And, and there was a point in the game right near the end where the ball was put into Kevin Garnett's hands. Not, not Garnett. Kevin Durant, thank you. And, and the coach and several players are start, start yapping at him. And if you read his lips, he goes like this to him. He goes, I got this. Well, he didn't get it, right? But he, he was confident. And for the most part, if you've been watching the series, if you've watched him play, you know nine times out of ten, he's got this. The, the, I share that analogy just to share Jesus is a greater, a much greater, greater person than any basketball player. And he would look at the fields and he'd look at your salvation and he'd look at your life and he would tell everyone, I got this. I got this. So what is he doing? What he's doing is, is he's implying here, he's recognizing here that the saving grace of God, the act of people coming to salvation, he is not content with you being lazy as a Christian. He's not content with you being on the sidelines as a Christian. What he's essentially saying is, I've designed it as such that the only way for people to come to salvation is the church has to be involved, and the way that they're involved the most is by praying. You know what we need in our church? Widespread prayer amongst our people. When was the last time you, you prayed for Tahoe? Not, not that the trees would be saved. Right? Hey, we've said this before. You know what's really good about Tahoe when we think about worshiping Jesus? Tahoe Truckee people know how to worship. They may not worship Jesus, but they worship the mountain, they worship the snow, they worship the tree, they worship the lake, and they worship the mountain. They know how to worship. Don't they? You know why that's good news? Because it's not hard to translate between if you worship a tree, you might get the joy of the tree, but if you worship the one who made the tree, you get the joy of the creator of all. And so we pray for people to see, if you remember the story of Jim Rippey, he's standing on top of a mountain, he looks over the mountain, he goes, oh my gosh, there's got to be a God. And he got saved. He became a Christian. And, and that's what we're hoping to see for people in Tahoe, that they can see outside and look and go, my gosh, the trees declare that God loves me. Tahoe declares that God loves you. I mean, I've lived here my entire life. And there are times, man, I've gone out to Lake Tahoe, and I've been taken out on a boat with someone who actually can afford something like that. And I'll swim in those clear waters and dive off those big rocks, and I'll think, man, this is why people live here. But you know what gives it all the more meaning when I go, man, God put this lake here for me to enjoy. I tell people when I'm counseling, I'm talking about how God loves them and enjoys them. You know God gave you taste buds? You don't need taste buds. It's just like essential to your survival, right? I mean, you have salty, sweet. You can taste a plethora of different flavors. My, my favorite flavor is carne asada. It's a real flavor. They need to put that in a bottle, and I'll sprinkle it on everything. And God gave, gave us, he gave us the gift to enjoy life. That's harvest time, folks. 
And so God says, Naomi, Ruth, your joy isn't going to be found in Moab. It's not going to be found in the world's stuff. It's going to be found in God's stuff. And I'm saying all this to say, listen, are you, are you praying? Because I, I believe and I want to see, I want to see God do more, more in people's lives. I want to see more people healed. I want to see more people reconciled. I want to see people more holistic. I want to see them healthier. I want to see them thrive. I want to see them smile. I heard one pastor this last few days said, too many Christians are walking around like the cover, like their covers, the cover of Lamentations. You know the book of Lamentations? It's a sorrowful book. It's a sad book. Hey, hey, man, as Christians, we should be joy-filled in spite of our trials and our tribulations because we're promised that God walks with us on the journey. A few lessons here from, from the farmer, and then we'll close. Um, if you're going to get into this harvest, and if you're going to start being blessed, I think prayer is a key part of it. Uh, but understanding the analogy of the farmer in the Bible is kind of important too. And you, you guys know Wayne would probably do a better job than me. Wayne was a farmer before he was a pastor. And, and uh, if you've ever sat under his teaching over the years, you've heard all kinds of just amazing farming illustrations. I've, I have never farmed. Uh, I have taken care of a lawn, uh, which is my ex- expertise here. So here's a, few things I, here's, a few things, here's a few things I've learned uh, that tie into just plug away. Number one, if you're, if you're going to be, I think this ties in with even just being in a relationship with the Lord as a whole. Number one, in order to see a harvest, you've got to be willing to wrestle with dirt and manure. My lawn people, we planted a lawn three years ago at our house, and the people who helped me, they, they turned me on. They said, don't listen. I'm just going to teach you here now. If you have a lawn, don't use Scott's. That's they told me. Don't use that stuff. It's got too much junk in it. It's like steroids for your grass. It'll keep wanting it. And he says, you've got to use this stuff called bio, Biosol. And so I've been purchasing this stuff for the last three years called Biosol, and this stuff smells like death. It's death in a bag. <laughs> and I purchased this thing, and it's almost like you've got to find a special way, a hazmat suit to wear it because you, you drag it into the house and all this. And my son Jonah said, Dad, I want to help. And I said, sure, help. Smell the bag first. So he walks over and goes, I want to help. And he goes, no, I'm going inside. And he, he refused to help. In order for my lawn to look good, it requires me to get my hands dirty, and it requires me sometimes to fertilize that lawn, which is a dirty job. Sometimes seeing the harvest means you got to get your hands dirty. Number two, I've also learned in dealing with my grass that it's perennial. It's every year. It's perpetual, and it's circular. One thing that I've learned about my grass, one thing I've learned about uh, farming my lawn, pine needles fall every year. And uh, every year when the grass, when the snow melts and I see what God has left behind from his precious pine trees, I wonder to myself, how is it possible for that much stuff to come out of a tree, one tree? I don't even have that many trees. And I could sit here and complain forever. But the, the, the point is, if you, want, if you want to experience the harvest, it's going to be circular. It's going to require some repetitive work. Are you with me? Number three, it's a, it's a constant fight against the weeds and the elements. Jesus used this analogy when he actually talked about the sower going out to sow, and some seed fell on rocky soil, some fell on good soil, some were choked out by the weeds, which were the cares of the world. And so we have to understand that we're in a fight against a culture that by and large does not want you to talk about Jesus. It doesn't want you to talk about forgiveness. 
It doesn't want you to say that you're a, that, that you're a sinner and the problem is sin and that the, that the solution is Jesus Christ on the cross. But we recognize that if we don't fight against those weeds, there's no true joy. The, the, the more I know of myself as a sinner, the more my love, that God's love increases in my life. Are you with me this morning? Do you understand that? It's like, man, the more I understand my frailty and my weakness, the more secure I feel because I'm in the hands of an almighty God who loves me not because I earned his love, but because he gave it to me freely. So it's a fight against the elements. And then number four, uh, it requires great patience and faith. Have you ever noticed uh, that, that, that if you plant something, you can do your part, you can get the manure, you can get the dirt, you can be perpetual about it, you can be perennial about it, you can fight against the weeds and the elements, but at the end of the day, you're trusting God to bring sunshine, you're trusting God to bring rain, and you're trusting God to produce the miraculous fruit that only just pops out of nowhere. We, we planted some peonies last year, and, you know, for the last, you know, couple of weeks, I'm like, are they dead? And then it was like I walked out one day, and I'm like, there they are. It's the miracle. Poof. And, and the one thing I've also noticed, you know, we, three years ago, we planted that grass, right? Three years ago. And I said, okay. They said, where do you want it? I said, I want it here. And we measured it out. Here to here, here to here. Perfect. I don't want it here. I don't want it here. I want it here. Three years now, the grass is where it should be, and grass is also where it shouldn't be. Right? I got grass out in my front yard. I have no idea how it got there. But God has a way of producing life in ways that we never thought or could imagine. And he just, he has a way of bringing fruit in unexpected ways. It requires a tremendous amount of faith, and it requires us to just lean into the Lord and recognize that he's going to do what he's going to do. And here's my last note of importance. The Bible's really clear. In multiple places, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. So let me... Let me explain this in a couple ways. One is when we talk about praying for our community, you know, that's a kind of reaping. We're casting seed. I'm sorry, sowing. We're casting seed. We're trusting God to do a work. And, and fruit will come of that. We know that God's word doesn't return void. Every message, every message, all I'm doing is I'm a seed thrower, man. I'm chucking seeds out into the crowd. And some of it lands on good soil. Some of it bad soil. Some of it, in all honesty, was probably bad seed. You just let that fall in the aisle way. Forget about it. And give me credit for all the good things I do and ignore all the bad things I do, right? Like, I just thrown out seed. And, and then God, God, God does what God uh, does in that regard. But you then have a job to do in understanding that when you plant your own seeds, your life is going to become what you've been planting all along. And you're eventually going to sow that harvest in. And that harvest is either going to be a harvest of weeds or a harvest of joy, a harvest of sadness or a harvest of great glad tidings. It's going to be a celebration. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's two points to this. One point is we reap into our church the, the way that we sow. If you aren't a good Christian, you're going to attract people for the wrong reasons to the church. If you're somebody who is loving people for the sake of loving them, not just because you want to see them changed. You understand what I'm saying? Like you want to see them changed, but you can't love people for the, because then it doesn't, you can't love people just to see them changed because then it's not love. It's love them. Do you know Judas was loved? You know Judas's feet were washed? You know Judas sat down at the meal? Now he wasn't converted, but he still loved him. And that's our job. We love, it's God's job to produce the fruit, amen? So there's that in regards to salvation. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's my job also to say to you as a church, you're going to reap what you sow. If you're a selfish person, eventually you're going to have to pay those dividends. Parents, 
Aren't you hoping that you're casting seed in such a way that one day that your, your kids will do something that, that's amazing or beautiful and great? Right? I've got three young boys, and I'm praying right now the way my mom prayed for me when I was a kid. Lord, I pray that my three boys marry beautiful, God-fearing, God-loving Christian girls. Lord, that's what I'm praying for. I hope that happens. And then I've got one little girl, and I pray, Lord, I pray that she never leaves home and she stays in our house forever. <laughs> and I am planting every seed I can right now to drive that home. Baby girl, you don't need to leave. She asked my wife, she asked my wife a few weeks ago, she says, Mommy, when am I going to get my ring? And I said, never. <laughs> I know there's some sexism in that, and I apologize. But, um, we're planting seeds. You're going to reap what you harvest. So church, church, be careful in the way in which you, you cast your seed. Be careful in the kind of influence you give. Be careful in how you handle yourself. You don't just represent yourself. You represent your family. You represent your church. You represent your Savior. You represent Jesus Christ. When in doubt, grace it out. When in doubt, grace it out. If you don't know how to act, you don't know how to respond, just give grace because we have a God of incredible grace, amazing grace. Am I right? I know I am. And so we also have to know that God says when you labor and you sow and you, and you harvest and you reap, you don't do so in vain. And so so many of you, I'm sure, are tired. Christy, you get tired in the nursery sometimes? Never? Yeah. Okay, don't lie to me. She needs help in the nursery. It gets hard. John, you ever, you ever grow weary in doing good every now and then in youth ministry? Yeah. Yeah. Does it ever get tiring greeting, John? I don't think so. Not for you. You're too... hey oh wee oh I'm sure Sandy would tell you, Wayne has grown weary at times. I'm sure Tammy would tell you in serving women's ministry that at times... I'm sure parents in the room would say that you grow weary sometimes. I'm sure working with the wrong boss, man, that gets weary sometimes. I'm sure the person sitting next to you is the reason why you grow weary sometimes. <laughs> Don't grow weary. It's the, Bi- the Bible saying you do not labor in vain. And can I tell you, I know, I know because so many of you remind me at times, I'm, I'm not Wayne, and I'm not, I'm not old, but I have been doing ministry from the age of 21. By God's grace, I've been in full-time ministry for 19 years. And I can tell you after 19 years, even though it's nothing compared to someone in 35 or 40 years, it's worth it. It's worth it. I've been married for 15 years. And going through the hard times of marriage, it's worth it. And God has always taken... Us as a church, he's always taken me in my marriage and with my kids, and he will you too. Anybody who's been saved longer than that, you know. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, you've been preaching for 19 years. I've been a Christian twice as long as you've been alive, right? And God bless you for that. And you would tell the church, you say the same thing, it's worth it. There sometimes is a famine. Don't leave Bethlehem. Stay with God. Keep praying for the harvest. Stick it through. God will bring you the harvest. Amen? So the team's going to come up uh, to sing, and we're going to partake in communion this morning. If, if you're a believer in Christ and... You want to share in this? I'm going to ask our um, our elders and deacons to come forward uh, and help serve. Um, and here, here's uh, what we're going to do. These guys are going to pass out the bread and they're going to pass out the juice, and then we will partake together.
and I know we're a little bit, we're going a little longer than, than we sometimes do, in part because of the, the gift to Jim, but um, stick with me. I think communion's worth it. Uh, thank you, Brad. And then, yeah, perfect. So go ahead uh, and just take some time while the elements are being passed out to pray. Just take time to actually apply what was just shared. Just pray. Pray for the harvest. Pray for uh, people you know, those Moabites in your life that you know that, that you don't think would come to the Lord. And just spend some one-on-one time with the Lord here for a few moments. Um, elements are being passed out. I think, you know, you almost, when, we, when I was thinking of communion in the, the, our first gathering, it's almost like full circle. And the reason I, I say that is because I would shared with you this morning that in order for, for us to have the harvest, to receive the harvest, something must die and, and that something would live. And Jesus has lived the perfect life to give us the perfect harvest. Christ himself is the harvest. He has died and he has laid down his life that you wouldn't see. You'll see, you'll see here uh, within, within time, you'll see that, that Ruth gleans from just the edges of the field. She doesn't get to have all of the field. She just gets to have the edges. And for you and I, Christ didn't give us the edges of himself. He gave us all of himself. We get 100% of God. And that is what communion is for those of us who believe in faith and the act of Jesus Christ. That God himself laid down his body and he died the death that all of us deserve. And he shed his perfect sinless blood to show us in his death that sin is serious, separates us from God. And he provided within himself the solution and defeated death to show you and I that there's only one who gives us the the keys to everlasting life, and that's Christ himself. And he says, partake in this often. Do it often in remembrance of what I've done for you. I have given you myself. I have given you the harvest. Lord, we thank you for your perfect sacrifice. We thank you for your life given, your blood shed on our behalf. We rejoice in this harvest. We celebrate it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may partake. His body broken for us. God bless you. See you next week. Hey, friends, let's stand together. We're going to close in a couple songs and we'll get you guys home. Let's respond. Mm-hmm.